Castle's services operate from the lands of the Dark and Young people to the south, the Awabakal people to the east, the Waramai people to the north, and the Wanarua people to the west. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of these lands where we work and live. We pay our respects to the elders of these lands, past, present, and emerging. Welcome to the latest episode of Embrace Your Otherness, Castle's inaugural podcast series, where we create an environment to talk to people with disability, activists, community leaders, and start to unpack questions of diversity and inclusion, and generally promote the idea of what it is to embrace your otherness. I am Brad Webb. I'm the CEO of Castle and also the host of this series. Today, we are going to be tackling the topics of intersectionality and mental health. And I would just like to say that today's episode may include discussion around suicide and mental health. If you feel like you need to reach out for help, you can contact Lifeline's helpline on 131114. You can also speak with QLife, a helpline for the LGBTQI community from 3 p.m. to midnight every day on 1800 184. Our guest today is Samara Shihata, Acting Manager for LGBTQ Plus Health Equity at ACON. Samara is a queer woman of colour who is passionate about community-led and designed projects with tangible outcomes to improve the health and well-being for all people in the LGBTQ Plus community across New South Wales. Welcome, Samara, and thanks Thank for joining you. us. It's a pleasure to be here. Look, Let's start at the very basics for everybody. First of all, what is ACON and what work does it do in the community? ACON is an LGBTQ plus health organisation. It started in 1985 um, with the HIV epidemic. So we supported through grassroots um, activists and collective organising um, how to care and support and also, um, I guess, raise the awareness of um, this virus and, and how it was affecting gay, bisexual and queer men in the 80s, um, particularly that early period. So it has an incredible history of um, literally, keep, you know, keeping a community alive, um, art, you know, activists' roots of we need support, we need treatment, we need care. Um, and it continues to this day with that same, I would say, vitality and um, and passion, and um, and want to really improve uh, our community's health and well-being in all, in all aspects. So we've grown from um, you know the early days would have been you know probably twenty to thirty people, particularly men and women. Um, uh, organizing and now we're about 200 a bit over 200 staff mm. um and it's there's also some national programs but predominantly it's we are new south wales based so we're almost 40 years since the establishment of acon mm. um 40 years ago the world was a very different place in new south Absolutely. wales a very different context so Tell me a bit about how, how ICON is a di how different it is as an organisation today from from when it first started, particularly around um, its community and the outreach and the work that it does. Mm. What's different about it to forty years ago? I guess um, 
it's well particularly thinking of where our communities would live and gather and and it's particularly in eastern suburbs and inner city sydney um you know if you kind of came out in as 18 you'd be getting on a bus no matter where you lived in or or get in your car and you drive to sydney and move to sydney um as very like few community members in regional rural or even western sydney um that had a sense of community and belonging where now it's kind of the opposite to be honest i think um community are everywhere we gather um, and create um, incredible organisations or incredible networks and community groups all through the country in the bush. And so the organisation now does a lot of outreach and um, we now are moving since the marriage equality debate as well and the low rates of um, yes votes in Western Sydney were really also targeting our work, our community outreach to culturally and linguistic diverse and refugees, asylum seekers um, and migrants um, communities out there. Um, and also regional and rural, we have uh, office now in Lismore and Newcastle, and we have teams that even though based in Sydney, they do a lot of outreach out to um, even Broken Hill and, and all through the southern region. So I guess that's probably been a, a major marker of change is where we live, where we, uh, where community, um, you know, we don't need to move to the city anymore. Mm. And, and that's been a huge shift. And I guess, um, uh, and also a major shift, and not only has our rights changed since 1985, there's been some incredible legislation changes, particularly in around the year 2000s as well, where we got some, like, we could adopt and we could, mm. um, we, you know, we could marry earlier on, but, and then that changed. But, um, but you know, just being, having a partnership, a legal partnership. Um, and so I guess with rights that have changed, um, so have our, our ability to be out and proud no matter where we live and work. Mm. And look, I'm sure we'll come to this later in the discussion, but some things haven't changed and that is health outcomes and, mm. uh, and equity when it comes to health. And now mm. you sit in a position at ACON uh, in leadership in health equity. Mm. What was your journey to, uh, to be sitting here today in, in that role? Yeah, I have a, a pretty colourful journey. Um, I started off as a, a queer performance artist in, in kind of, you know, uh, the subcultural communities in Sydney. Um, and then I became a sex worker as, as well in my early 20s. And then I became interested in understanding human rights and particular around sex worker human rights um, and how... Um, sex workers uh, globally, you know, create like a union and, and collective voice and power to, um, to, to, to talk and raise awareness of, of violence and discrimination. And so um, that in my early 20s, I moved to Cambodia and, and started working with a, a local um, grassroots um, union called, um, I've just gone, uh, Women's Network for Unity, um, WNU for short, we used to say. Um, and so that was my early training and education, um, really understanding what it looks like 
um, for sex workers in Southeast Asia um, that were street-based sex workers, um, you know, what their lives were like every day, what the, the type of stigma and discrimination and violence they experienced. Um, and it, you know, obviously broke my heart um, on, in, on, in every level, but it taught me so much. It taught me what resilience and strength really looks like and it taught me um, what community care and, and coming together uh, and having mutual understandings and why it's so important. Um, and to tell your story, no matter if you feel shame, um, uh, it's it's more important to actually be truthful and honest and and share because others then can also come out and and it creates you know a larger collective um, uh, voice for change and so um, that was that changed me in my early twenties and then I. Um, I started in that kind of international development realm, but I, I really hated it. And I hated it because um, for me, all of the programs and how the funding was funneled through, um, you know, the colonial, I would call it, I like how First Nations people call it the colonial project because it's everywhere. Um, and how, um, you know, certain like, like massive, you know, powerful countries like the US would operate through their agendas, through funding. And so I kind of realized quite quickly that I wasn't into that, um, that kind of, um, you know, development framework well, or practice. When you've been spending time in marginalized yeah, groups, exactly. creating collectives and communities. You know, you so. take some, they say, here's $100,000, but you've got to do A, B, C, D, E. Um, and so I went back to become an artist. I came back to Australia and then I um, became an art therapist and I, cause I love understanding more about uh, mental health and how the tools and, um, you know, practices to support um, transformation and understanding trauma and, and how that impacts people's lives. And then, but I'm an activist and an advocate at heart. And so I found it really difficult to work on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And, um, and then I saw ACON's, uh, a position at ACON seven and a half years ago. And that kind of, I guess I really was able to then um, put all my skills together. And um, especially as a, as a queer woman, uh, and a queer woman of color. There's it's not there's not many queer women of color in leadership uh, in this country uh, in all different sectors. But even particularly in the LGBTQ health sector, there's not many of us that um, have kind of stayed with this line of work. Um, mainly because it's quite like we talked about male dominated due to that early HIV mm. um, those early HIV years. Um, so. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting position to be in um, at the moment. So I, at the moment, my role covers trans health equity, suicide prevention, and I also um, support the needle and syringe program um, service in, in Sydney. So that also um, has a, is an incredible service that's been running for, you know, 40 years as well. Mm. So, mm. And just to, to frame the discussion we're about to have, Health equity, can you explain that concept? What is health equity and why is that important? I like to always 
um, talk about it um, visually because a lot of people have seen this graphic where um, that you're looking at the football stadium and, and the there's three boxes yep. and everyone's a different height or a different body and um, and health equity is not about giving the same box to everyone. It's actually making sure that the box um, suits that individual so they can see the same game as everyone else. So obviously it would have a different height or um, a different shape um, to make sure that people have that access. Um, and so I, I frame it like that, that it's, it's, um, it's almost like a, a practice to really, um, I think there's what is not talked about is the values of time and how time, uh, you need time in order to understand uh, the needs of, of people across different identities of different lived experiences um, and, and therefore um, equity involves um, not one solution in, in if there's a, if there's a problem that's been identified it's not one solution it has to involve so many different solutions that I believe should be then peer-led I'm a big supporter of then peer or community-led responses to an issue or a problem so that's so where I think equity kind of fits in into in in this landscape and so obviously equity has a very clear and direct relationship with one of the things we're here to talk about today, which is intersectionality. Mm. And um, the definition uh, and I, I've got here, the term that describes how different aspects of a person's identity, such as their race, class, gender, sexuality, nationality, can expose them to overlapping and interconnected forms of discrimination or disadvantage. And mm. it was a, a term originally coined by Kimberly Cranshaw, mm. the American lawyer, scholar and activist, who wanted to remind people that oppression is linked and not separate. Mm. And in the context of Castle, for example, the um, according to the Private Lives 3 survey, the health and wellbeing of LGBTQI plus people in Australia, and that's a national survey of um, the health and wellbeing of LGBTQI plus people in Australia that was last conducted in 2020, almost four in 10 of the participants there, it was 38.5%, uh, reported experiences of, dis of having a disability or long-term health condition. Mm. One in 10 reported a profound or severe disability. And then you, you moved to 20% were moderate disability, 6.4 mild disability. And it was notable in that study that there is a, a higher proportion of people reporting a disability than there are in that study than there are in the Australian population. So for the people that Castle work with, there, mm. there is an intersection often um, mm. with sexuality, which compounds that sense of disadvantage or oppression that can occur. So when we talk about the technical terms and some of the data and the stats, when you hear the term intersectionality, what does that mean for you and the context of your role in supporting health equity? It actually means having uh, difficult conversations to disrupt power and to disrupt the status quo. Um, when we when we frame, uh, and I and I think this is what where we need to move into. Um, 
it's like the term disability not this language you know there's also uh, other ways to frame isn't it like when we talk on disability it's like there's other abilities as well it's not all it's that word dis or when we talk about um you know racism or um yeah i i think um we're always then centering who we're centering and who who's on the outskirts and often people with intersectional identities what they're saying is they feel othered Mm. they feel different to what the center is so we need to then actually the center should change because um i forgot the question you asked but um i guess in my line of work i'll give an example of how i kind of the way i i um work with equity with my teams because everyone um in in the teams that work in this in the field of trans health equity or suicide prevention we all come from different lived experiences it could be a trans woman that comes from uh you know an australian white australian background middle class uh, and doesn't have an experience of disability um, and so therefore if that woman is creating specific content um, then it's up to me to interrogate who the audience, who is she speaking to? Is she speaking to white trans people? Or is she speaking to, you know, uh, trans people? Is, is it accessible for all people? Or is it highlighting just a subcultural group? Um, and so a part of my work is then to question that. And then from there, we can identify how we can shape language or, sh- or uh, address, um, you know, um, address maybe like, uh, sorry, I'm trying to articulate this, address who we're missing out on or who mm. we're, who's invisible and, and actually make um, different, uh, yeah, the different well, and diversity a- a visible and, and, and it can even be in one post and, and can literally be down to, you know, framing, um, you know, one of two sentences in a social media post about a recent murder of a, of a trans woman and how we need to acknowledge, yes, we are, uh, um, everyone is affected by this one murder, but how many murders are happening every day that we don't know about that aren't in the media? What about it's particularly black trans people, particularly mm. our First Nations trans communities across the world. We don't hear that news, but we hear the news from the UK when a 16-year-old trans woman is murdered. No trans person should ever be murdered. Um, but when we when we um, write about this, we do need to acknowledge um, the pain and suffering and loss and grief um, for all of our communities here and globally. And so I guess that's where equity comes into it because it it's when we read um, content or when we are, um, when we listen to different voices that don't get heard or aren't visible, I think when it's accessible and all of a sudden we're, we, ref, we can reflect and we re- can re- reflect on what we don't know. So and if I hear you correctly, it's 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 the health equity work you do is in this in, in an intersectionality context, is the acknowledgement that 
just because you think you're talking to a particular group of people, you may not have captured that entire group of people because the experience of a trans woman, white middle-class Australia is going to be different from that of a trans woman from, uh, with a disability from a low socioeconomic background or a, uh, a, a gay man is going to have a very different experience depending upon their educational context. Exactly. Or their, uh, and so we, that tendency as humans for us to try and to make sense of people by categorising yeah. them in a box can inadvertently exclude people from it a communication. Does. And it absolutely does. So, yeah. And then and so when when we do health promotion, I mean ACON is a health promotion organization. Um, and so it's really important that we either don't speak generally and we do we do acknowledge who we're speaking to and we target that language and um, and frame it so it's accessible to certain um, communities or, or subcultural groups or language groups. Mm. Um, so we have to be clear. But when we are, um, when it's hard, we can't do that all the time either. Um, it's not practical. Um, so there's, there is ways that I guess with um, when we're creating services or programs or, you know, or content, we have to then think, okay, um, who are we consulting? Who are we partnering with? Who are we employing? You know, who's even in ACON that we might be able to bring in in the table um, in the development stage? You know, like you kind of, I guess it's um, those those um, processes and practices at work are really really important because um, it holds us accountable. Yeah. yeah, you can see why people avoid it. <laughs> Can't you though? Because you you've referenced that idea of complexity and being able to, I, I almost imagine it's like a, looking through a, a prism with all the different facets. You've got a core message that you want to get to a core. community. Yeah. Um, exactly. But what you say to one person can be heard in a, that that one message can be heard in a million different ways. Yeah. So it's easy to get caught in this complexity of oh we can't possibly communicate to everyone in every form. So it um, it's why the conversation gets avoided. Uh, yes. And, yes. And, and that idea of intersectionality becomes challenging for people to get their head around. I mean, even hearing your description of that, it, it clearly is a complex place to navigate. And mm. you've got tight timeframes, often very tight budgets. You're trying to get a, a message out. So it's, uh, and so I imagine a lot of this comes from practice, trial yes. and error, getting it right sometimes, making some mistakes, learning from those mistakes. And I think the great experiment we've had was was COVID-19 with mm. uh, communicating complex health messages and realising, you know, I used to mm. think about particularly the Western Sydney community and the sheer diversity around language groups of how challenging mm. that was to get clear messages yeah, out that kept in, people safe in and language well and, and, and in cultural context in cultural context exactly yeah. different media some people listen to radio versus tv it's yeah it's it was an incredible experience i think watching it i i agree with you i enjoyed seeing how that was handled and you know what are the what were the delays or mm. um yeah, and, and how did, uh, you know, yeah, things like in Melbourne when we talk about intersectionality and we talk about, um, I don't know if you remember, but, yeah, there was kind of key moment when they locked down the, the, the towers. The towers yeah. And that really yeah. taught, I think, um, health, you know, the local health system mm. 
and community community responded to that first before the government did and and so again this leads us back to remembering i always feel like um as you know if if you are a community member or you're working for an organization and you're invested in inclusion and diversity in 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 promoting that in creating you know safety for individuals um i think we have to always trust that community actually know and and lead and so um and so therefore uh it's almost like it's almost like that ability to like observe and and you know um watch and listen and those fundamental skills uh, mm. is is actually what really uh, practicing inclusion is about. Not not having an opinion, just hold back and and observe and listen and, listen and mm. learn and I and and then respond. I'm reflecting on this from the context of people that are listening to this, watching this podcast, grappling with with the concept and um, Recently, Newcastle, City of Newcastle, hosted the musical Come From Away, which was the... Uh, oh, I heard about that. The, the story of the town that became the epicentre for all the planes landing on September 11 yeah. when they were grounded. Uh, I don't know how intentional that was when the writers put that together, but mm. that town grappled with intersectionality from the moment there were 7,000 people... Uh, 9,000 people in town, 7,000 people landed mm. from all over the world. Mm. different ethnic groups, different languages, different religious uh, affiliations and how that town had to... The show is about them adapting and responding and building relationship, which was fundamentally about listening. And when you don't Mm. have common language on top of that, how do you listen and grappling with that? So, you know, there's plenty of pop culture references that can talk to intersectionality. And I want to dive into a very specific component of that now Mm. and talk about mental health, which is a passion Mm. point for yours and the Mm. LGBTQI plus community and that intersectionality that exists there and how it is that um, that informs your work. What are you doing in that space and why? Is that is that particular intersectionality important for us to unpack and tackle? It's so important because I think um, well, I like to actually talk about mental health a lot more broader. So I um, started my work a year and a half ago now, um, leading the suicide prevention. Um, health promotion work at ACON. So there's also services um, around counselling um, as well. But my work particularly is creating resources for community. So we started off creating a digital hub called here.org.au. Um, and so the reason why I'm taking it to suicide prevention quite quickly is that um, I think uh, the lens of mental health is quite narrow when we think it, even just the word mental, we know that um, it's it's psychosocial. It's it's a part of our um, our bodies. You know, trauma. When we talk about trauma, um, we talk about um, stigma and discrimination, and that affects our mental health. Um, we talk about um, in suicide prevention. Now we're talking about situational distress rather than mental health. Not everyone that has a mental health illness or a diagnosis experiences suicidality. So we also frame it now in terms of how someone 
can experience uh, a significant event or, lo- or loss in their lives that changes uh, their, yeah, how they, why they mm. want to live in this world. And so I think, um, sorry to like add a lot of complexity into this, but I think when I like to, dis- I like to discuss mental health uh, in a bigger picture now, I, I feel like um, it needs to because we know that in order to have um, to, to have it, for community to that experience a lot of suffering and distress um, with either their mental health or around suicidality, we know that if for anyone to create transformational change in their life and and to feel differently um, in in themselves and their lives, it's like we know that it involves so many different supports and care and systems and therapies and um you know it's holistic Mm. and so um yeah i like to i like to kind of uh talk about mental health in ways where it like allows people to understand that it's there's no one uh, it's not their fault that they have a mental health diagnosis and also, um, you know, to take that blame away but also to encourage folk to to really access all different um, types of um, healing or therapies or, you know, uh, connections to services like and getting some people even getting a job like in Castle, what you would experience can be completely life-changing. Mm. Um, and so I think... Um, and to also address LGBTQ people and communities why we experience higher rates of mental health distress. Um, again, goes back to that word intersectionality, doesn't it really? And how, um, and how what we call homophobia, transphobia, biphobia. Um, basically, it's saying that you've been told in your life that you're wrong. Mm that you need to change and that you need what we call as heteronormativity and heteronormativity is um what uh, has you know is in some people's view is you know that's right and everything's wrong so you have to be heterosexual you have to be cisgender and you have to and often it's usually white as well and it kind of comes in that package Mm. (laughs) um and so a lot of community members experience so much stigma and discrimination and violence and from a really young age because they're they're not accepted they don't have um their gender affirmed um when you know they know who they are and they express that um or their sexuality um and so i think when we talk about mental health distress we have to talk about it in ways where we understand these societal pressures, these societal, um, you know, like the, how um, it wants to conform. People need, you know, need to conform into these pressures and these ideals. Mm. And and I mean, I've never, my whole life, I've I've been queer since I was sixteen, and so I rejected it pretty quickly. Um, and and of course, I've experienced stigma and discrimination in my life. I'm also Egyptian um, and so my Egyptian family don't know my sexuality. 
um, because, you know, it's my father's wish not, not to um, because he doesn't want to feel isolated. And so there's all these, yeah, another it's into layer layers and layers. And, yeah. um, and I just, yeah, and I, that's another thing that also a lot of culturally and linguistically diverse um, or my, people from migrant backgrounds, you know, we, we can often experience even further isolation of our cultures if we do choose to come out. Um, so, uh, I, sorry, I guess I, I'm going into the web, isn't it? My, my brain goes scattered, so you need to help me to come back in. That, that's right. That's, that's the truth yeah. of the work that you, it's, that, yeah, that you do. That's, and when I think about mental health, that's where I go. I go into all those <laughs> avenues of going, you know, and if each individual has their own story. Hmm. And some people might be queer and out and proud of and not really experienced any discrimination stigma and have a mental health, um, you know, illness or diagnosis that they're living with, mm. and and and, and, and relate it to something completely different mm. in their lives. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. But we do have to talk about heteronormativity. We do have to talk about racism and the impacts. Mm. We do have to talk about uh, situational distress and mm. you know and so-called dominant cultures. These dominant cultures. Yeah. 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 yeah I was. Uh, listening to the author and academic George Haddad speak recently um, about uh, uh, race and the impact that that has on on being queer and the need for these conversations. And I guess at the core of your work, it's about creating that uh, space for there to be different views brought into the health promotion conversation, mm. into the suicide prevention conversation, yeah. so that when it's playing back out to the community at large, people can hang their hat on, on, on the bit that they need to hear because somebody exactly. has finally heard their complex or yes. interesting voice um, has heard that and played that back. And when we were speaking earlier, uh, before we started recording, you were talking about the shift mm. in uh, you know, the, the, the nature and fabric of ACON as an organisation to mm. reflect that diversity in the communities. And and, yeah. yeah. Be that rural and regional, be that Western Sydney, be that... Uh, different genders, different ethnicities. Exactly. It's uh, yeah, a fascinating space in which you work. It is fascinating. Um, I feel like I am in love with my job, and um, and I and I love um, working at Acon, and I love the people I work with that teach me a lot, and um, you know, and I and I have a reflective practice, I think, and that's the foundation of of what I bring. Um, yeah, uh, to this role and, and to my work at large. But um, I think, um, where were we going? I, you mentioned something that was really great about, yeah, how I guess that, again, going back to visibility and how people can resonate with with something or, or a story yep. or a, a resource. Yep. And then that might, you hope, um, gives them guidance or uh, to uh, either access a service or to use a resource that might hopefully is useful in their life. And I guess that's really the heart of it, isn't it? Is mm. you hope that there is a connection to the work and to um, what you're delivering <laughs> to community and yeah. yeah. So I want to draw this back then a little bit to, um, I mean, people, 
some people will be listening to this and going, oh, how fascinating. Other people are going, what the hell are they going on about? <laughs> that's so You're holding I can't it, get yeah. my head, head around, around that. It. So if, if we were to step back from that and say, look, let's accept that there are many different ways to be as an individual and as a human being and you're encountering an individual and you don't know all of the ways mm. that they may be, all of the intersections that may be in their, in their world. Mm. But you're about to have a conversation or encounter a need to support somebody um, uh, with their mental health. Mm. For the layperson who doesn't have time to quickly process and think about all those intersectionalities, what advice would you give them about how to approach that that conversation or how to approach that support if they're in their workplace or in their family and they they're just looking at somebody who needs some support and you've got all of this understanding all these resources in and my resourcing head and intersectionality and where do you start i i think it's you know asking the basic questions first is you know their name and what uh like gender even, understanding their gender experience, their sexuality, you know, naming those few things earlier on for me would then I can connect the dots. Um, I also like to know if they are feeling isolated or lonely and then you can also know if, you know, that can be an important part or they've – or. Um, yeah, and I and I and all cultural background. It's very much important to know their cultural background, and I guess from from understanding all of all of those, which we would call in the health word demographics, <laughs> it's like if anyone's experienced uh, accessing a service, you usually have to fill out an intake uh, assessment form, which is basically those questions, because um, they're important questions, and um, and there and then. It is um, also just how are they feeling in the now, in the present. It's really important to know if they're in crisis or um, because that would be a different referral to a crisis support or if they're just experiencing, um, you know, anxiety, depression, um, uh, yeah, any kind of more of the in the mental health realm. So it would be naming the feelings and um, as well, and then that would guide me to then, I guess, thinking about, uh, yeah, can it, like, I mean, there's so many wonderful services in terms of referring. So having those conversations, are you okay? How are you feeling? Ground, understanding, understanding from that um, perspective. And then it's often... I mean, this is interesting. I'm going. I'm thinking about this idea of helping, right? So a lot of people, um, and you'd find this in the disability sector, is the word help. Uh, a lot of people don't necessarily are asking to be helped, but they want to be supported and cared for. And I think there's a there's a, a difference um, because sometimes you can't change. Uh, depression or anxiety or you know like you, you're not there to like transform that for that person you're there to just listen mental health often is when someone's experiencing distress they just want to be heard and to have this empathic experience so I think I don't know if I'm answering your question well, right but yeah I, I do think it's just having conversations and feeling comfortable 
with knowing how someone is, what state they're in, mm. you know. I, Correct me if I'm wrong by all means, mm. but it sounds to me like just listen. Just do what you would do to support somebody who needs support in the moment. Refer them as, as you require. Yeah. You can't possibly in that situation, if you're not skilled, they'll understand, deal with all of that complex intersectionality. Right. The most important thing is that then the health providers and those around them and the individual themselves can access the resources that they that they they need. might want or they you know yep. sometimes it takes if you talk to most community members they've seen five psychologists or they've been to 10 services and sometimes it takes time also to find that right fit you mm. know as well so it's 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 like not giving up and then at the same time with a friend so if, say if you're you're a support person um it's also just keep having the conversations keep holding hope for accessing different services, trying new professionals, um, getting connected to community, making new friends. Um, you know, I, I believe, particularly in suicide prevention, again, there's not, there's never one answer to anyone's issues. It can, it's so complex. Um, often it's employment barriers and financial stress and um, feelings of isolation and loneliness or, um, you know, men, cis men actually have a high rate of, of um, gay or queer, you know, cis men have a high rate of suicide as well as trans communities and gender diverse communities and, you know, First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Level. We, you know, it's, it's, re it's really interesting when you look at suicide um, statistics because um, it's not nice and neat in boxes because it Nothing tells is. us humans... <laughs> Are wonderfully complex and and um, and majority of us we just need a, a space to be heard and listened to and um, and to be understood on some level and I think when we talk about intersectionality what really the work that has to be done is this is to be understood and so rather than um, uh, coming from an I perspective I always think about we and so it's that movement towards understanding what collective differences and diversity is but then not not needing to understand everything but having an, an at least a, some understanding of how to connect mm. ask the right questions and so that person feels um, supported, you know, or heard uh, or seen. I, I think if nothing mm. else uh, that these podcasts do is it encourages people to think outside the squares that they live in yeah. and to uh, contemplate exactly. that there are different ways of experiencing the world. And yeah. so just to, to close out uh, the work that you do, um, I imagine you have a vast quantity of resources and supports. Where would you direct people to... Uh, is there a website or a, uh, a a resource pool that people can go to if they're genuinely interested in learning more either for themselves, wanting to seek greater information and clarity for themselves or just generally wanting to learn more about like LGBTQ, LGBTQI, yeah. uh, health issues and the like? Where would you send them? Well, transhub.org.au is incredible for really understanding trans and gender diverse community um, it's important for trans and gender diverse community members themselves to access that and allies and, and service providers. Um, it has so much 
uh, information and, and knowledge and referrals and services. And then for suicide prevention, um, here.org.au is ACON's latest digital hub. And that's for all LGBTQ communities. And um, it has a wonderful list of services and also resources like how to talk about suicide safely. Um, you know, how to support a community member with a safety plan. So identifying what might keep them safe if they uh, are feeling suicidal. So there's all these um, useful resources on that site. There's also um, for LGBTQ people that are culturally linguistic diverse or uh, refugees, asylum seekers, we have an incredible website called Rainbow Cultures. Um, and that, I'm um, sorry, I don't know the exact details. I think it's rainbowcultures.org.au. Um, and that has more community um, group networks resources. So it's a, it's a, a ability, it's kind of an incredible site that links community members to then other community groups and members. Um, and because we know that belonging is so important to health and wellbeing. Um, they're probably the three and obviously acon.org.au is really then has everything um, for, for our services that. and our programs uh, across the whole organisation, particularly regional and rural. We have incredible outreach services as well. So acon.org.au then is also an, uh, an important one. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your story and the story of the work you do which is critically important and very different to the world that uh, i experience every day and i really appreciate being able to learn from you and i did pick up quite a few things out of that conversation i always finish these podcasts with a question to my guest which is about embracing your otherness what does embrace your otherness mean to you um sentence my otherness uh, rather than I, I like yeah I reframe it so it's not my otherness that's outside it's my center so I am I I know that sounds a, a bit meta but I um, I feel that um, what I was told was different and wrong my whole life is now who I completely am and if that makes sense so I embrace and I and I am proud, and um, and 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 at complete peace with all of my otherness, <laughs> which is a lot of who I am. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess that's how it's it to me. My relationship to being othered is actually just who I am. <laughs> that's a tremendous spot on which to end today's <laughs> conversation, Samara. Thank you again so much for coming in and and being so willing to share your story it's been an absolute pleasure oh no it's been a pleasure too thank you for having me mm -hmm.